a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Romas with you. Today we're going to be talking about the Canadian Forces, intelligence, and some of the response uh, to the gang or criminal network presence and things that touch on the forces. For that, I have Sergeant Philip Daniels of the Canadian Forces Military Police here. Phil joined the military in 2005 as infantry with the 3rd Battalion, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. And then in 2008, he was deployed to Afghanistan and received a command commendation for actions under enemy fire in ASTAN, as well as another commendation for rebuilding community relations at CFB Wainwright. In 2011, Phil moved to the military police and spent five years at CFB Wainwright before moving to the Canadian Forces National Investigation Service, where he worked on major cases such as uh, sexual offenses. And then in 2020, he moved over to the criminal intelligence section where we kind of cross paths and uh, been working on some different projects ever since then and different events, I guess I should say. So welcome, Phil. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, yeah, I was just saying like we've kind of crossed paths at a a number of events now and we've had a few meetings and stuff. So you're kind of working in the same world I am in in dealing with the gangs or or organized crime. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe tell us a little bit to start what that's been like, how you're your life's been going right now. Uh, well, right now it's been really busy. <laughs> yeah. Especially, uh, especially getting back from uh, everything slowing down over COVID. And uh, now everything is, uh, is back in full swing. So uh, find my, my weekends are fairly uh, full going around to different places across Canada. Yeah. You were saying you were like, uh, we were just talking this past week yep. at one of the events we were working. And you were saying the amount of travel you did, and man, I didn't know you were like, uh, you're Canada wide, but you're come back for five days and then you're out to another place and you're working all these different events. Uh, are, and they were mostly uh, biker related, right? Like OMG, Outlaw Motorcycle Gang stuff? Yeah, like uh, like Outlaw Motorcycle Gang related and uh, some of the, the veteran groups as well too. Okay, cool. Yep. Well, we're going to get into the veteran groups, especially, uh, I did a post online recently and one guy was kind of challenging me on this, which was interesting to, to see, cause he's labeled as a security expert or professional security, something like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, we'll get into talking about the OMG groups, veteran groups, and then there's the police ones and all these other things. Yep. Uh, but maybe we'll start kind of at the beginning and tell us about you, where you're from and, uh, what uh, growing up was like? So I've uh, I've actually been really fortunate, and really unique in my career. I grew up in uh, the town of Redwater, about forty five minutes north of Edmonton. So I'm an Alberta boy through and through. Born in Fort Mac, parents moved down to Redwater when I was little, and uh, so uh, throughout my entire career, I've been fortunate enough to stay in Alberta. So uh, I just uh, um, really, really, really fortunate, and then. Uh, Aside from work, I always try to make sure that I find time to go out and uh, do some fun things. So, like hunting, like sports shooting, mm. and uh, you know, almost your uh, your stereotypical Alberta. So. <laughs> what, what is? Uh, do you have any family history in the military? No, uh, my grandfather World War II. Like, uh, uh, I'm actually first generation Canadian. My uh, my mom was French. My dad was British. So. Uh, um, my parents know, but my grandparents, uh, we've had a very lengthy, uh, on both sides of the family, very lengthy military history that's gone back to the, uh, on my dad's side, to the 1700s, 1600s. So, uh, wow. yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> it's been pretty prevalent in the family. Do you, uh, like, does your family kind of pass down any of those stories, especially from that long ago? Or even any heirlooms, any kind of cool stuff you collected? Uh, like I have some of my grandfather's medals from World War II, which is uh, which is pretty interesting. I, I didn't realize uh, the depth of the military history in my family until my uncle in Scotland he uh, started doing a family tree because in Europe they keep records forever mm. uh, that date back to the the 12th century, the 13th century 
um, he was able to uh, to track down and find her military history. And then uh, he was able to uh, talk with extended relatives over in Austria and uh, track down the, the family side down there too. Wow. It's, it's pretty interesting, yeah. Man, has it got any uh, kings or anything in the bloodline? <laughs> yeah, right. I, uh, I would. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't. And then uh, I, I have another uncle. He was actually uh, city of Calgary police for 30 plus years. Okay. So uh, it, it was almost written uh, somewhere that fate had decided that the two should connect. And uh, I ended up in military police. Yeah. Well, especially doing this job now. Um, well, so when you were looking at going into the military, is there anything that kind of pushed you in that direction? So was it whether it was people or maybe you just watched a lot of movies, but. It was a little bit of both. My, uh, um, I had a really good, uh, one of my mom's really good family friends when we were growing up, uh, her son joined the military and I used to hear his stories and then, uh, watching movies. And when I was going through school, I was, I was always interested in the, uh, you know, the military side, uh, or policing. And I kind of, when I graduated, I spent a few years kind of hopping around from job to job before I could really decide what I wanted to do. And then, uh, once, uh, September 11th happened, um, I decided, you know, back and forth about the military. And then finally in, uh, 2003, I walked into the recruiting center and said, you know what, this is what I wanted. Nice. And, uh, the infantry at the time, it always appealed to me. So, uh, I, I, the infantry was my first choice. You always wanted to be a ground pounder. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then I walked into the recruiting center and, uh, said, here I am. And, uh, course it's a long process uh still a long process to get through and then uh yeah 2005 i went to lovely saint jean quebec and uh, started my basic training and then by uh november december 2005 i was back in edmonton yeah so that you and you were saying in your bio uh which i didn't read off this part because we were going to end up talking about it but you spent your career your whole career in the military has been posted out of alberta yep posted in alberta so i, I i've been uh um, but the way it works with the infantry, uh, when you're in a, a particular regiment, so the, the PPCLI, you're generally going to find yourself either in uh, Edmonton or Shiloh, Manitoba, maybe Gagetown or, uh, Wainwright for teaching. So, uh, three PPCLI was, is based out of Edmonton. So I was in Edmonton. And then, uh, uh when I put in my, uh, occupational transfer, I actually tried to leave and go to, uh, either coast and, uh, they were like, nope, Wainwright seems like a good decision for you. So uh, let's send you off. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds just like the Mounties. Just like, yeah, that's nice. Here's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just the luck of the draw. I mean, it, it could be worse. <laughs> it could be a lot worse. Well, exactly. I, I actually have nothing but good time, good things to say about my time in Wainwright. Wainwright was actually really, uh, really good. We have a really good relationship with the RCMP. And, uh, we did a lot of work together out there and, uh, the people, the people out there are great. It's, uh, you know, if you're in a small community and you, you foster that building of a relationship in a community, it just makes uh, life so much easier. Yeah. Well, and when you're out, um, so you're out in, as infantry and you get deployed, I think it was 2008, you went over to Afghanistan. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, being deployed and what that's like on family life? Uh, it was, uh, it, it's pretty hard. Like, uh, um, uh, I, I don't want to talk about how the infantry works today because I've been out of it for, for so long, mm-hmm. but, uh, back we were doing, uh, um, a, a ton of, of preparation training because the, the planners and the powers that be, they know this particular unit is going to be going over to Afghanistan at this particular time. So, uh, you do the, the road to high readiness, you, you do all your, uh, your pre-deployment training, you find yourself, uh, away from home quite a bit. Uh, I think in the lead up, if I remember right in the lead up to, uh, deploying in February of 2008, we were pretty much gone for, uh, seven to eight months, uh, prior to that leaving, um, you know, a month in. So that's, you're still in Canada. Yeah, you're still in Canada, but like oh, we, wow. we do, like a, we did like a month in Shiloh. We would do uh, you know a, a month in Wainwright, then uh, some time down in Southfield, and then we go back up to Wainwright for a bit. And then in between, you would have to do uh, to assist with uh, other units that are getting ready, or um, um, you know uh, courses that are running where they need infantry uh, soldiers to run around. 
and uh, and things like that. So it was actually uh, it was pretty hard. Uh, um, like I had at the time, I had a, a, a infant son, and uh, you know you, you miss out on a bunch of those milestones and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, fortunately, I have a, a very supportive family, so uh, that made it uh, a lot much easier. And then uh, in, in deploying, I actually. Uh, uh, I actually deployed, uh, while my wife was pregnant oh, really? and, uh, yeah, but the, uh, uh, fate worked out and, uh, I managed to come home, uh, uh for a couple of weeks for the, for the birth of my child. And then, uh, uh, nine days after she was born, uh, back on, came back to Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, so, wow. uh, yeah, I, I was fortunate in that respect because there was, uh, there was definitely some, some people that, uh, while they were deployed, uh, uh parents would die or family members would die or they would have uh, mm-hmm. the, the children and just the logistics of everything and, and uh, where we were out and about you can't immediately just jump on a plane and go home so uh, i was very fortunate in that regard and unfortunately some of my uh, my colleagues were uh, missed out on uh, some very important life events just because of uh, the the temple and the location yeah i guess that you know you're out in the middle of uh, some desert somewhere or you're you're in the middle of a battle of some sorts or you're about to be like they're not sending anybody in to come take you out of there just you specifically like nobody's considered a special case necessarily that's right and and uh, like i don't want to come across and be like make it sound like the army's cold-hearted or anything because uh, they're not when it comes to that but it, it just literally comes back to the uh the realism of the situation yeah and can they can they get you out right now uh, the flip side of that is, is uh, during that time period, you also knew when you were deploying that that is a possibility that if something happens back home, you can't uh, uh, you can't get on a plane right away, and the chances of you being able to get home right away are very. Uh, okay, all right. Um, while you were deployed, you see, uh, you ended up getting the command commendation. Yep. Can you talk about that scenario and and what's A stand? Because you say actions under enemy fire. Uh, Afghanistan. Sorry, that's the military language. Oh, okay, just Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, A standards is kind of some yeah. Porn typing. Yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, um, it's uh, 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 I, I don't think of it as anything special, but basically, we were just out on a patrol and we, uh, uh, we got ambushed, and uh, my fire team partner and I, we got uh, the area we were in. We were kind of separated from the rest of our section. And, uh, we kind of just held our ground and, uh, um, returned fire. We engaged and, uh, uh, fortunately everybody got out. All right. Um, but it, it's special to note there that my, uh, my section, uh, commander, Jason Kapitaniak at the time, he actually ended up winning, uh, being awarded the, uh, the medal of military valor, uh, for that day as well, too, because he was, uh, he was actually, uh, running around and rallying all the uh the troops in the section and getting us uh it's called the x getting us off of the uh yeah uh the the kill zone so that we could uh all get out we all got out safe so it was uh <laughs> it was a hair raising and uh a hair raising time and uh and, yeah. so when you're out there like when and your infantry you're not in any type of vehicles or you, you're just like out walking and and then get ambushed so my role, like my role, uh, it, it, it's interesting because uh, three PPCL at the time, uh, they were that's where all the jumpers were coming from, like the, the paratroopers. Um, the uh, we we're known as a light battalion, so we did a lot of work by foot. Um, when you deployed to Afghanistan, though, it wasn't realistic that you were on foot all the time. So actually, we uh, spent a, a portion of uh, the two years prior to deploying, uh, getting mechanized and getting used to use the mm. uh, the lab three at the time. So my job overseas, I, I actually kind of, I did both. I was, uh, I was a lab driver, uh, for a good chunk. And then I was also, uh, a dismount. And then I would also fill out on, uh, on, uh, uh, patrols as well too, when, uh, when individuals were gone. And, uh, the, the situation over there was very, uh, uh, fluid and dynamic. So you could get ambushed or you could get IED strikes happens in vehicles on foot. Um, it, it just, uh, yeah, it was a very fluid situation. Well, and, uh, which of the two would you say is actually probably scarier is driving the vehicle or actually being out on foot? 
because I, I'm just thinking of movies. You always see somebody, the driver always takes it first or you drive over <laughs> yeah. something that explodes. Yeah. Yeah. At least on foot, I can maybe be nimble and get away from something. It's, uh, to be honest, when you first, uh, like, uh, when, when I first got there, that would be on my mind, like, uh, like, uh, um, what happens and everything else. And unfortunately we did lose some, uh, some really good, uh, some really good soldiers over there, uh, namely died in strikes. And, um, um, ideally I wouldn't want to be in either situation. Uh, um, but, uh, um, I honestly look at it as both are, uh, not ideal situations to be in. So either one has, uh, either one for, for lack of better term has its advantages and its disadvantages. Okay. So, so, uh, you were in infantry for several years and then you ended up moving over to CFB Wainwright and you became involved in doing like investigations. Well, that must be quite the departure from marching around in Afghanistan to uh, uh-huh. being at home and, and doing investigations. A hundred percent. Like it was, uh, there was a couple of years where uh, when I first got back and I, w- I was debating what I wanted to do, I, I had actually put in to go back right back to Afghanistan when we got back in the first place. But uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So I ended up uh, not going. And then uh, I started to become a little... Uh, um, to see how, what was happening to individuals that were coming back with, uh, at the time with mental health problems and with injuries. Okay. And then I was like, what am I going to do if I find myself in a position where all of a sudden I'm hurt or I can no longer continue in the military and all my, uh, cause I, I don't have, uh, I don't have any post-secondary or anything. And, uh, mm. so what am I going to do? Like if, if I get, uh, injured or, or if I end up uh, medically released from the military or something, what, what skills can I bring to the table? Right. So I was looking at uh, RCMP, or uh, uh, originally uh, going intelligence, intelligence uh, through the military, and then uh, I met with the the base personnel selection officer, and the particular unit I want to go wanted to go into. She's like, "Well, yeah, I need to be a, a member of the military police," and I'm like, "Well, I, I can't. I don't have any post secondary or anything. I'm like, Maybe I'll look at the RCMP then." And she goes, no, no, no. She said, uh, we just, they brought in a waiver that if you had uh, done an overseas deployment, um, they would waive the post-secondary education requirement. You still have to go through the selection process, but they waived the post-secondary selection process. Okay. So uh, I went through that process, got picked up, and then uh, ended up in Wainwright. And the irony is not lost on me because uh, Wainwright is one of the big infantry training bases. Yeah. So uh, it, it was kind of good to bring that uh, that background to the table, working on that base because uh, it helps. Because um, um, mindsets uh, mindsets are different in uh, in different portions of the military. So if you deal with somebody that's a combat arms, like a, an infantry, or armor, or artillery, uh, combat engineer, they might have a a, a little bit more of a a stern attitude when you're dealing with them oh i see like somebody in a work field or, or or something like that right yeah um so it's uh it's also nice too because a lot of our uh, a lot of the military police members at the time um uh were right off the street so they've done their police foundations or their their bachelor's degrees or whatever but then they're dealing with military members but they don't have any exposure to the military culture yeah so uh which can be uh which can make your job hard you can make your job really really hard that's even that's the same kind of concern or gripe that police have, even within the police circles, right? If somebody's uh, gets promoted to a spot that you're like, man, they got no background in that. Like, why are they doing that? Yeah. And sometimes the service just puts people in places because they need a body there. That's right. Um, other times it is a good decision. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> when you were in that section. You said like, and I know this from having helped a few times with military police investigations that cross over kind of off the base into the city. Um, so you're dealing with sexual offenses, but is that kind of the, the biggest thing you would do? Like if it was a murder, the local police service is coming to deal with it. Um, but what, what do you investigate in there? What kind of crime types? So uh, with the... Uh the mandate is CFNIS is uh, serious and uh, sensitive uh, investigations. So that can be that can be up to a lot of interpretation. But basically, um, yes, in the case of a murder, um, we we would definitely refer that to uh, 
uh, local police jurisdiction that can provide the uh, the technical know-how, right? Yeah. Um, and, and have that experience. But uh, I've done I've done everything from uh, uh, worked on uh, attempted murders to uh, um, aggravated sexual assaults, um, sudden deaths. The military is uh, the military investigates every death on uh, on D and D property, regardless of the circumstance. Okay. So. Um, even if, uh, you know, a sudden death, um, suicide, uh, training deaths, things like that. Um, I, I've investigated all sorts of those, but the majority were uh, sexual offenses, 100%. The majority of the, the work were sexual. And is that just like guys or girls bringing somebody back to base and stuff, something happens on base, or is that even when they go off of base? Uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a kind of complicated uh, question to answer, but, uh, because the way our, the jurisdiction for the military police is uh, um, full jurisdiction over d and property uh, and equipment and also members that are subject to the code of service discipline. So mm. a regular force member, a full-time member is subject to the code of service discipline, regardless of where he, where he or she are uh, and uh, 24-7. Um, reserve members, so the, the part-time members, um, if they're on a full-time contract, then they're subject to the code of service discipline, so they could fall under us. But if they're uh, just doing the regular parade nights and everything, it's only when they're on D&D property or, uh, you know, D&D uniforms or uh, um, doing a, a D&D related activity. Um, a lot of times what would happen is if we had a, uh, uh, say, a sexual assault that happened in Edmonton, we would call over and uh, just be like, hey, Edmonton Police, we're, we got this complaint. Um, it happened in your area. Um, do you want to investigate it? Do you want us to investigate it? Like, uh, we're basically just letting, letting you guys know what had happened. Okay. Um, now, because the, uh, and, uh, and, and I just want to lay it out there, that everything we talk about here is my, my interpretation. I'm not speaking <laughs> on behalf of the, uh, of the Canadian Forces or the Military Police Branch, but um, they, um, um, now it's a victim centric approach. Mm, okay. So if the victim comes to us and is, uh, and, and we have the ability to investigate it's within our jurisdiction and the victim goes, no, I want a, uh, the other police service jurisdiction. So Edmonton is generally RCMP unless it happened in the city of Edmonton. Um, then the file gets referred, would, would be referred over to them. Um, but we do have, uh, victims that, uh, um, say no. I want the military police to uh, do the investigation. So then, uh, then uh, our guys would conduct the investigation. Okay. Well, and one thing maybe you can explain this too is what's uh, and if for listeners who don't know, like there's military jail and then there's yeah. civilian jail. So uh, I did a tour once at the military one yeah. uh, on at the garrison, and and it did not look like a fun place. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of rules all the lines on the floor that you got to follow around and you're yep. only, like they had rooms where you're not allowed to touch walls and like they got a lot of rules for you so can you kind of explain what the difference is between uh or like how someone might end up in that jail as opposed to civilian jail like the edmonton remand or something absolutely i actually uh i uh spent uh about a nine month period when i when i was switching over from military uh, from the infantry to the military police working at the jail okay um so that was a uh that's quite an experience and uh yeah the, the, the big difference is the the purpose of the military prison is uh or was then i'm assuming it hasn't changed now is basically to help re- rehabilitate the member and have them go back as either a, a functional member of the military or as a functional member of society or uh, prepare them for the eventual transfer over to civilian. Okay. Um, and what would get you sent to military prison? Um, military members, if they were charged under the military justice system and convicted by a military court martial, um, or uh, I, I, I've never heard of it happening, but uh, apparently too, like if uh, if it's your civilian attached to the military and you're working overseas. And uh, something happens there, then you could end up getting uh, sentenced to military prison. Okay. Well, and yeah, that was kind of something they explained a little bit. Uh, I, I want to say back, this is maybe eight years ago when I did this tour. Yep. And they were talking about just how, I guess, when you get into the military, most of the people that come in already have some sort of structure and they're used to discipline and having some stuff regimented. Because when you're in there, like you're folding your beds, you're polishing everything, 
They're giving you a million tasks, keep you busy. Not like that in a normal jail. So uh, I guess the people, you know, the the police would arrest on the day-to-day or what, you know, a person that you might think of generally might just come from some place where they literally have zero structure, never had anything that where they're responsible for anything. So they kind of don't have that in the jail for them to do. It was, yeah, it was a pretty different dynamic when you talk about it. Can people do both though? So if you get convicted under the military side, can you serve time there and then go over to a civilian jail? Like if it's... So yeah, the uh, the military prison, so so the most amount of time you could spend in the military prison was two years less than a day. So for example, if, you, uh, if you're convicted of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, an aggravated sexual assault, and you got a six-year or seven-year prison sentence, um, in theory... Uh, you could end up spending two years less a day in the military prison and then be transferred over to a civilian prison. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and uh, people convicted also had the option to uh, apply. Um, I'm not too familiar with the process, but it did happen a few times when I worked there, but they could apply to actually transfer over to a civilian prison uh, to get out of the military prison. It, it's not a quick overnight process. It usually takes a few months, but... Uh, um, some some of the uh, the members that were there sentenced, you know, a year or the two years less a day would uh, they would apply to do that to be able to uh, facilitate their release to uh, um, you know somewhere close to home or where family could uh, could come. Oh, it, it, I was just about to ask, like, why would you ever want to go from the military side to the civilian? I guess if you want to not do anything and have zero responsibility. However. Uh, you're in there with a lot of random people as I would imagine way more dangerous. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Like, um, you know, the thing about the military prison is, uh, you went there, you work, you, like you work, you got up your, your entire day was regimented and you would have breaks worked in there. You would have some free time worked in there, but you spent your days cleaning, uh, doing maintenance things, wh- whatever was, uh, was on the schedule for that day, working out, you'd set times for working out and everything else. Um, the hardest thing I think a lot of people had was when you first got in, you can't, uh, the inmates can't talk. So you can't talk to each other. Um, oh, really? you can't talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that was definitely quite the concept and there was no, uh, um, you earned your privileges. So if you were a smoker and you had come into the prison at the time, you had to earn the eventual privilege to have a cigarette break or have a, have a cigarette. Wow. You had to earn the privilege to watch TV. So it's it very, very strict and very regimented and, uh, and, and very effective. But there, there are not a lot of uh, frequent uh, reoffenders that come back from the military prison. <laughs> yeah, I imagine people aren't too excited to you know, double up their time there. <laughs> um, so talking about all these investigations, kind of move us on to some of the stuff uh, that you're doing now, but also uh, your time when you were with the uh, investigative uh, service. What, have you ever dealt with a file where people have uh, been stealing, like you know, national security uh, secrets or documents and stuff? Like, did that fall under your mandate at the time? No, like the, uh, a lot of the national security stuff, I, I wouldn't deal with. Um, we have like our national uh, national counterintelligence unit, and uh, they would deal with that. And then, of course, there's uh, uh, CSIS as well, too. Um, and then, uh, the RCMP and inset and, uh, all that, uh, all, all those, all those types of groups generally like, um, um, if anybody was ever, uh, um, that I've seen so far, anybody that's, uh, been under those types of, uh, investigations, it doesn't fall us. Okay. So maybe we'll talk about your current position then with the criminal intelligence section. What is under your mandate right now? Who do you kind of look for? Yeah, our, our thing is, is we're looking for the, uh, the criminal intelligence section as a whole. We, pr- we provide the military police as a whole, um, you know, tactical and strategic criminal intelligence. Uh, we also look for um, CAF members involved in criminality or uh, criminal events, trends, uh, and things like that that could have a direct effect on the, uh, the Canadian forces and, uh, and can potentially involve uh, criminal Okay. Well, and 
like when we've worked together, generally, yeah, you're you're kind of on the Intel side. So you guys are at these events, uh, taking pictures and recording things, the who's who and and knowing, you know, kind of who the players are in the game. Do you uh have you ever seen from your time, is there any specific they uh there a particular group like OMG groups or right wing extremism that is an issue within the the forces like is one more prevalent or more influential uh and uh this is just based off my my own thoughts my own opinions and, and what i've seen myself but um yeah um th- there has been an issue in the past with, with extremism and and the canadian forces uh absolutely like anybody that follows uh canadian history canadian military history is uh well aware of the events of the nineties. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and all the problems that came, uh, out of that. Um, my concern and, and my thoughts right now are um, the interaction between CAF members and, and, and uh, OMGs. That's uh that's a, a really big concern of mine and, uh, my bosses and, and the CAF as well. So, uh, when, uh, when there was, uh, there was, uh, it's called the camera for Jen that was released back in 2018 that covered hateful conduct and racism in the in the Canadian forces and a, a lot of members it's in there but a lot of members aren't aware but there is uh the caveat in there too that also says that Canadian forces members are prohibited from associating with uh known criminals uh organized crime groups uh known crime groups and uh, and things like that and uh unfortunately uh, I think a lot of groups start off with their own goodwill and their own good centric ways, but then uh, they end up being associated. Well, and that's kind of the thing that I, like I was saying, I, I had debates online with a few people about, but it's, uh, you know, do you have these groups that emulate, so you have the veterans clubs and they want to look the look and, you know, talk the talk and do everything that an OMG does. But then when someone questions it, they go, oh, but I don't do the criminal part. Why are you emulating that then? Why don't you create your own thing, right? Be a leader. Don't be a follower. So, you know, we don't have to have the top and bottom rocker and the centerpiece. And a lot of these groups, not all of them, but a lot of them do go and ask permission to wear these things. Yep. So that's what also what I don't think the public realizes is there is some uh, level of expectation where they go and ask, hey, I want to wear this because if you don't, and this is from somebody I've talked to who was involved in one of these groups from the firefighter side, not in Edmonton. Yep. But they actually went to one of the uh, support clubs and met up with a Hells Angel member and some other people at the support club and said like, hey, here's our patch. Here's what we're about. Here's all the things. Like doing a big pitch to them saying, we're not uh, intruding on your territory. I thought this was fascinating. Yeah, but it also made me. I was just like, "How can you be saving lives, or you know, out here fighting a drug war, and then you're doing this on the other side of things?" Exactly. So, I don't know. What are your kind of thoughts around that? I don't know if you've ever had been able to talk directly to some of these guys, or maybe through an investigation, like what they say. And 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 here's the problem: you you hit the nail right on the head with the emulation. Um, if uh, what what I find concerning um, is I have talked to a few of these guys, but when you talk to them, they're like, "We're not going to talk to you. We don't want to talk about club business. We don't want to, uh, you know." So okay, well, well, if you want the police to to stop paying attention and maybe uh, disassociate you guys, maybe just let us let us know. Let us know why when you're holding a uh, an annual party or something, all of a sudden you have uh, half of a chapter of the Hells Angels showing up yes. or, uh, you know, or, uh, oh, there's a Hells Angels ride and suddenly uh, a bunch of members from your club are showing up and participating in the ride. Yeah. Like, um, well, even the attitude right off the beginning, just like yes. how you said it, yep. that's exactly how a, a majority of the interactions begin. I'm not telling you, or I can't, I'm not allowed to tell you. Yep. Well, who, who says that? The, the Hells Angels group? Or one of those other equivalents, like that's, that's who says that. <laughs> so, and it, yeah, no, you're you're right on. But uh, sorry, go ahead. No, and 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 it is concerning because there are uh, like um, uh, obviously uh, I'm not going to go into numbers and stuff, and, and people know who they are, but they're uh, 
there are uh, CAF members that are active serving CAF members that associate with these groups. They're not members of the groups. Like they're, there's uh, not members of the Hells Angels or anything like that, but associating uh, through these clubs. And then uh, you try to talk to them about it. And uh, it's, uh, no, we won't talk to you. Yeah. So, and, and it, it gets to the point where you have to balance out, all right, is this, uh, is this particular member or members, are they, are they starting to become a security risk? Mm-hmm. Is there going to be a security risk that the uh, um, Joe Bloggins that's in charge of uh, ammunition or weapons, right? Or sensitive equipment or information. Um, all of a sudden he gets called in, uh, he or she gets called in and uh, has to uh, provide something for uh, their club or for another club. I like that you said she, because we have dealt with, as the gang suppression team, we have dealt with females uh, through our own job that have been associated to Hells Angels members, have been friends with them and do give us that attitude. And yeah, it's, so it's not, it's not just guys, there's girls involved and there are girl clubs as well. No, that that's absolutely it. And then on on the other hand, too, uh, and uh, I've uh, I've talked with my, my boss at, uh, at length about this as well. Too. Another concern is uh, uh, can be retired members that are now employed by the the D and D as a civilian uh, and okay. working on as a civilian as well too. So uh, um, unfortunately, um, you know, it, and it it can be the exact same concerns as it is active serving staff member but you're uh you're working on the base and you're working with uh you know high value um equipment people um you know things like that is there uh, is there a risk there um, absolutely well i think it also some of the concern at least from the police side is dealing with people and, and the training they receive and then the training that they pass on and that's like everything from weapons training to explosives uh you know, there's a lot of uh, safety concerns, security concerns, especially when it comes to those things. Well, one thing I want to see if maybe we could get your view on is what happens with these people that do you start seeing, okay, I, I'm taking a picture or, or something at one of these runs that they do. And, you know, what's kind of like a very generalized path that okay, I got this picture or I saw this person at this, this run. What happens now? Yeah. So, uh, we, uh, like after everything's done and we do our reports, we sit around and we talk and we, we do look at what the, the way ahead is going to be. Um, do we talk to, uh, do we talk to certain, um, do we talk to certain, um, uh, internal organizations about, uh, security clearances? Should this person's security clearance be reviewed? Should, uh, um, should we talk to their chains of command? Should we be like, Hey, like your member was identified as this. Um, the big thing is if we're dealing with the military member, at one of these events, or you're dealing with the military member, at one of these events, and you start becoming, uh, uh, confrontation, yeah. uh, or aggressive, right? Because, uh, there's, there's mechanisms within the military that that can be dealt with. Um, we also look at, uh, uh, like where the member member currently is and, uh, um, is there a risk with, uh, with where they're working right now? Um, and, uh, I know, uh, speaking with, uh, different levels of, uh, chain of command throughout the military, like, um, I, I haven't yet spoken to one person that's been like, ah, oh, so it's okay. Just let these guys do it. Everybody's like, why are these members doing this? And yeah. And what, can so. Well, it, it's people always bring that up where they talk about there's some police club. I've never seen this in in Alberta. Maybe there's some here. I want to say maybe it's more of a U.S. thing, but uh, there are police motorcycle clubs, and they too wear the top rocker, bottom rocker. They have their centerpiece, and some of the arguments have been, well, by us wearing it as the police, we're um, taking the power away from those other groups. I don't buy into that at all, mainly because, well, you don't have as good a marketing strategy as the, you know, <laughs> maybe the Hells Angels or one of those groups because they're everywhere and they got movies and they're on all the social media. Like, you're not taking any power away from anybody. If anything, you should be going in a different direction. Like I said, being a leader, creating your own thing. So I wonder too, like with the, the military clubs, 
And kind of like you're saying, like when you go talk to some of these guys, they might be confrontational, but I've had a number of them that I'm not sure they are so aware of what they got themselves into. So it's not to say like, as soon as you see a patch, this guy's a bad guy or girl, and they're doing all these uh, criminal things. There's a lot of people I think getting involved that um, maybe on the surface of it, they might maybe they kind of see and go like, oh, there's some things I'm not like a fan of, but they don't just see straight up criminality. Like they're not just sitting there watching a robbery go down <laughs> with all their friends inside. Um, but once they start going to the runs, see the interactions with the police, and they go, you know what? Like I'm not really good with that. And then they kind of you know get out of the lifestyle. So you. Do you guys see a bit of that going on? Absolutely. Like there's uh, uh, there's some members that that we've seen the um, you know uh, you'll see all of a sudden who's this person? Uh, oh, they're hanging around with this group, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and they're not associating anymore. And you also see it too. Like um, you also see it too where some of these groups still go out to a to a big event, and they'll ride out there, and then uh, um, you'll see they tuck themselves away. They don't even associate with. Uh, with any of the, uh, the OMG members. Yeah. Um, like you, you can see the, in some cases you can actually see that they're actually not comfortable being there, but they're there because of the club. So, um, yeah. So I guess it's, maybe it's kind of like even, um, just when you have like a squad at work and it's like, well, your, your boss can kind of form where the group's going, or maybe you have one or two senior people who, decide to go and do something, it, it changes that culture in there. So um, you were talking about some of these retired members. This is one of the the interesting things I've noticed at some of the runs is where you have like maybe a dozen or two dozen actual full patch wearing biker types. And then you have like a hundred of these group uh, guys from these groups. So one of the groups that we see out there is the commandos and they're at these runs and they're kind of made up of civilians members as well as retired members. No, they're, they're, they're all, uh, uh, 99% of them are retired military members and not necessarily from Canada, but, uh, retired. Oh, okay. And not even from necessarily Canada. Yeah. There's a couple that are from outside. Okay. Are they all, but there's, was there a component where some can be, civilians that worked for the military they wear a different patch yeah so and and this is this is kind of like the uh you know for lack of better terms the interesting thing about it it really is yeah it's interesting and and it falls in line with the emulation so you'll have a group like them who who they're full patch they're they're they have their own club they have their own uh uh they're all retired retired military members but then they have support clubs. Yeah. So, uh, and they have their own support clubs. And then the support clubs, the majority of the members of the support clubs are, uh, are civilians that have no association with the military, like maybe a, a, pe- a family member or a friend going to the military or whatever. So when we first started seeing, they're like, yeah, we're just out here to s- show support for the club and everything. But, uh, we've also had times too, where, uh, um, much like you see on the, uh, the other side of the fence where, it's the support clubs that come up to us and start being uh, confrontational and argumentative and yeah, uh, and everything else. So uh, yeah. trying to get in the good good books or something. That's right. That's right. For you, uh, as being in the calf, can you do anything with the retired members? Like it, I, I don't imagine you can go after uh, somebody's pension. I think that's been tried in court on a number of different type of jobs. But once a person retires, is that it? They're just Hey, free to go do whatever you want and still say, Hey, I used to work for the, the forces yep. and represent yourself. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, like unless they're, they're still employed by the D and D cause it, it, it's common and, uh, and it happens in, uh, pretty much, uh, policing as well as the military, but you'll get a, a member that's done their 25, 30 years or whatever they retire. And then the next day they walk in and they're a civilian working for, uh, for your agencies. Right. Yeah. So, uh, we have the, we have the exact same thing too. And even then, like if there's uh, if there's no direct criminality, then it's the uh, the administration, so security mm. clearances and things like that. One of the things I was wondering too was, uh, I think it was, oh man, I, I wouldn't even get the time frame right, but a few years ago, there was some guy who took off and he crossed the border, and I think they said he joined the base. Yeah, yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, so and that was in Manitoba, I think he crossed right. over. Yep. So do you get a lot of these groups? I, know, I shouldn't say a lot, but do you, I imagine you get some of this happening where they join these extremist groups. Is like is that a real common thing or is that like once a year type deal? It's uh, like uh, I wish I wish it was something that didn't exist in the in the calf as a whole because uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a, just all around disgusting. Um, but unfortunately, calf is like a- any other segment of society. So so you do have uh, individuals that get drawn into that. I haven't my, myself personally over the last few years. I haven't seen a lot of it. I've had one or two cases that have come across, but I, I haven't uh, uh, I haven't seen a lot of it. Unfortunately, though, even with one or two cases, that means that it still doesn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it still draws. Yeah, it just you know, kind of brings the forces into the the lens of media, and they start picking up on that and saying this is like a, a huge issue. But um, I've never really seen that. Like outside of the the OMG groups, I haven't really heard of extremism or different things taking place. Like I've never seen those kind of come across in Edmonton, anyways. Yeah. Um. I think you get a lot more of those uh, sovereign citizen ideals or the, you know, the three pers and, and whatever other groups there are. You get more of that as you go further south. Yeah. Like maybe around Calgary. Yeah. But um, do you see, like, is there a difference between regions in Canada? So, because you've worked events all across the nation. Yeah. Do you think that like one area is more prevalent for OMGs or extremist groups to kind of pick from? the forces um i i don't uh i haven't spent enough time outside of my my area like my area is uh alberta saskatchewan manitoba northwest territories and yukon um but uh and the majority of time that all being said the majority of my time is with alberta but uh i haven't really been while i have been traveling to all these different events i haven't been to enough of them i think to really form an educated opinion about that okay but my my general thoughts are from what i'm seeing is uh um that i think they're they're the calf is attracted. Calf members are attracted to these groups, and these groups are also attracted to calf members, no matter where you go. Yeah. So it, there's a there's a risk and a possibility, and, and I I don't uh, um, I, I don't have enough information or, or enough uh, exposure to the to the rest of the country to make a, uh, an opinion about that. Do they does the calf provide any sort of training for the general membership to say like, hey, watch out for these type of groups? They might try to come in and influence you, especially like on your time off. If they see you riding around and you're wearing your your fatigues, or they they gotta know there's some way that these people get recruited, or at least make them aware. Like, hey, if your friend starts taking you to a rally, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be there. <laughs> so, so unfortunately, I, I'm not aware. Now that being said, there might be, but I, myself personally, I'm not. I'm not aware of any of that training. What we have had happen is like uh, when you when you go to a specific area for training. I have had it where it's been like, hey, just so you guys know, like, don't go to this place, don't go to this place, don't, oh, okay. don't associate with with whatever. Uh, um, usually, it gets mentioned somewhere along the lines, like, hey, you guys, stay away from this bar. If you go to this bar, they're known to hate military, or, or there's a lot of crime that happens at this bar. So we recommend mm. you don't go to this area or don't go to this area. Yeah. That's uh, my personal uh, knowledge. Like that, that's the extent of it. I, I wish there was. It, it would be nice if uh, if something could be incorporated, like day one, uh, when you're walking into the calf. Like just so you know, sometime in the training that you get a very specific brief about uh, um, being uh, being told, like, "Hey, here's here's the types of because you're a calf member alone. Here's who you are attractive to, yeah, and here's who could uh, who could uh, potentially try to uh, befriend you in, in order." To yeah, and you know what? Well, hey, that's a good promotion opportunity right there. <laughs> <laughs> so you could take that idea and run with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you know what? And, and speaking about like national security with a, a number of different guests I've had on here uh, when it comes to like foreign influence and, and so on, education is one of the biggest components that's missing. Educating the public, and in this case, we're talking about CAF members, and saying, hey, there are people who are, want to use you that want to get to you because you can provide training equipment or whatever else it might be, um, some type of information. And maybe even, you know, every few years, uh, kind of re-upping that training, like, Hey, here are some new groups. 
these other ones are gone. Uh, these ones are still around and they've changed their tactics. So those might be things to kind of look at. Does the CAF, uh, like with police, we have a whole number of training days set throughout a year. Does the CAF do the same thing, like a, where they can just provide you with information? The, the, the CAF as a whole, I'm not aware of. I know like my, myself, uh, I set aside uh, a few weeks every year and I try to travel to all of my, uh, my police detachments in my area and try to, uh, to educate all of our members and, uh, and brief. And the, and the, the two things I always brief on are, uh, extremism and, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and then, uh, recently we've been, uh, um, trying to get more education, more information out to uh, higher level chains of command as well too. Yeah. To, uh, to, to allow them, uh, to, to make them aware that hey there's an issue that uh, not a lot of people are aware of but it, it's an issue and right now uh fortunately knock on wood nothing uh uh nothing serious has happened thus far uh but uh you need to be aware that uh this is happening yeah that too uh really good point the the information also needs to go upward because you have well especially in the military i don't know how many members you have in total but uh, I know just at the police service level, and we have 2,000 people, like, st- stuff doesn't make it all the way to the chief, <laughs> let alone the four or five ranks between you and him. Yeah. Uh, like, you really got to push information up and find time to educate those people on what's going on. Because, you know, they're the policymakers and they control the budgets. So <laughs> you need stuff kind of... You need policy to be made and then you need money to implement it. So, no, I think that's a really good conversation. Um, I don't imagine, uh, we're just kind of coming up to the end of our time here, just at the hour. Is uh, is there anywhere people can follow you? Or you got any social media? I don't imagine. I, I don't. I don't imagine people want to see you coming for them. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Probably not I, a good uh, thing. <laughs> I like the fact that I can just show up and be like, hi, I'm here, we need to talk. And they're like, uh. <laughs> yeah um yeah and no uh no i don't and uh and unfortunately like outside of work i, I also lead a, a lead a really busy life as well too so yeah at this time i, I don't have uh time to uh, do anything. actually i'm i am working on a bachelor's degree now it only took me uh you know 30 years to decide to do it but uh yeah so. hey, it's always useful that's right man his life is just lifelong learning so that's right Cool. Well, I'll say thanks for coming on. Hang on for two seconds. Yep. I'll just stop the recording. But uh, yeah, I appreciate having you on, man. I think this is an educational uh, discussion that is a good place for us to start from. And I look to have uh, more conversations in the future about these topics. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.